Good morning, church. Happy New Year. It's good to be with you and gather again as we begin a new year, just as dependent upon Christ as we were in the last, and just as hopeful of His good grace in this new year. If we have not met, if you're visiting here with us this morning, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you have chosen to join with us this morning as we consider God and His Word and look to the counsel that He gives to us. And as it is uh, the first Sunday of a new year, I thought, before we jump back into the Gospel of Mark, which will begin next week, let's consider a brief meditation from God's Word as we turn one page of our calendars and turn to the next and look to some foundational truths that really are applicable any day of the year, but especially as we head into this new year. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? We're going to be considering this portion towards the end of this, of this chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Matthew 6, let's begin reading in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God... So clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness." And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Would you pray with me as we consider God's Word? Oh, Father, how good it is to begin this year not only hearing from Your Word, but responding to you in prayer and being able to respond to you with this holy and yet familial title of Father. 
Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning as we consider your word, that you would illuminate your word by your spirit unto our minds and hearts that we might receive it as it is. Lord, we pray that you would help us with these very foundational truths that transform the way not only we see ourselves, but the way that we see our circumstances and the way that we see you. Lord, forgive us for how often we neglect these very simple truths that transform our daily lives and help us this morning. Help us to receive and to see according to the wisdom of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we're all aware, as we head into the new year, we are faced with this pressing reminder. For all of our planning, for all of our intended focus and energy that we intend to devote to various projects this next year, there is much that we do not know. There is so much that we do not know in spite of all of that. But that uncertainty that is there should never be crippling, nor should it be an excuse for any inaction. Because in light of all of the uncertainty that awaits us this year, there is the most certainly this one great, unchanging, and unwavering truth. Who our God is, and who we are before Him. We are His people, and He is our God. He rules over this earth with perfect power and wisdom. We are citizens of his kingdom, and from that kingdom we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We are pilgrims, we are sojourners, and yet we're not abandoned as orphans in this world, for he has given us his spirit to be our paraclete, our helper who comes alongside of us. But the great challenge in all of this is forgetting, or rather failing to walk in the light of these truths on a daily basis as we head into yet another year. The continual battle, I believe, for God's people is forgetting that we are God's people. Because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, that truth slowly, gradually, even imperceptibly, unnoticeably, is crowded out. And we forget that as God's people, we are, in fact, God's people. And often what we devolve into is instead of people of faith, walking by faith, we are people of faith attempting to walk by sight. And by sight, what I mean is that we choose to allow what we feel or what we've reasoned on our own finite minds or what we perceive or even fear to be is the ultimate reality and dominate the way that we approach life. But God's people are not called, on the other hand, to be aloof and detached, to be isolated from this world, to be removed from daily life, because as you think about this week, this month, this coming year, you know that many of you have school. Many of you have chores. You have jobs to attend, homes to watch over and serve. The realities of marriage, of tuition, repairs, retirement savings, they weigh upon us. 
And then in light of all of that, and on top of all of that, we are called as God's people to be lights in this world, to adorn the gospel, to go to every nation making disciples. So what I'm getting at is what you're all aware of. I just want to bring it to the forefront that we might consider the reality of it this morning. How do followers of Christ guard against the pitfalls of being consumed by the temporal matters of this world and yet honor Christ in the days that we've been given? The big idea, and what I want to meditate on this morning, is that we live our lives in light of who God is and who we are. If we go into this year mindful of who God is and who we are, we will then be enabled to live each day reminding ourselves that our God is our Heavenly Father and we are His dear children. If that truth shapes what we think, what we feel, and how we respond, how would it change our living? How would it change the same circumstances that are going to await you tomorrow morning? Well, let's consider the portion of text and notice how what Christ is doing here is seeking to get at this reality of anxious living through a series of contrasts, a series of illustrations. Notice that he points out two treasures, two conditions, two masters, and then lastly, two responses. We are literally at a fork in the road. And that fork would be our treasure, our condition, our master, and ultimately our response. All of this aiming to help us lay hold of this great truth, God is our Father, and we are His people by merit of Christ and His grace. Let's consider first the two treasures. Look back at verse 19 where Christ teaches, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The point Jesus is making here is one of contrast. He is laying before us the comparative durability of two types of treasures. And by doing so, he's emphasizing a key principle in good investment. Do not invest in that which will evaporate, but in that which will remain. And the treasures of this earth, he says, they're frankly subject to corrosion. Moth and rust destroy and if you evade those, look out, because there's a thief who's probably going to seek to steal it anyways. Even the most sound earthly investments are fragile. In contrast, Jesus points out there's also such a thing as heavenly treasures that are immune to corrosion and loss because they ultimately endure. Therefore, the point, don't hoard up these treasures on earth, but instead, the exhortation, stockpile heavenly treasure. Now, Jesus, at this point, does not then pull out a chart and say, I have listed all of the earthly treasure, and I've listed all of the heavenly treasure. If you've begun collecting these things, you need to lay them down. He doesn't move into lists, and he doesn't move into box checking, because that's not our Lord. What he does 
is he goes after the heart. His concern is not simply the stuff that we have, but our relationship to it. Hence, his point in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our love is defined by our true treasure. So let's think about it. How does a person relate to treasure? Well, a treasure is something that you guard. A treasure is something that you protect. You would even be willing to to sacrifice for it. You honor it because ultimately it has your concern, your care. We might go so far to say is your affections. And so we would then ask, what am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I looking to preserve and to guard? What am I fearful of that if I lost this, this would be the end? What am I so proactively seeking after? Meaning, what fills my thoughts? What fills my calendar? What fills my planning and my intentions? Honestly, think about that. And as you give a brief thought to that, an overview, ask a follow-up question as you categorize all of those elements and say, how much of what rises to the surface has to do with matters of eternity, matters of the soul, issues that reflect the glimmering brightness of heaven that Christ speaks of? What we're getting at here has to do with this foundational principle in biblical Christianity, and it's this theme of stewardship. Not just your bank account, but your time, your abilities, your energy, your emotions, that you are a steward. You are responsible for something as one of God's people that is not your own. Again, Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians is very applicable along these lines as he would write to them in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He would write another letter to the same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. In his own testimony, he would say, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That, brothers and sisters, is the definition of stewardship. What I have is not my own. What I have has been given to me. And if I am a Christian, I have been bought with a price. Therefore, my new aim, the love of Christ, controls me. I want to honor God in this. So Jesus says here that a Christian has a certain relationship to earthly treasure. Namely, it doesn't have his heart. Because his heart is given to Christ. But he goes further. It's not just the two treasures. He then says there's also two conditions that we need to consider. This is verse 22 and 23. Look back there. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
Now, this just isn't some random statement here. Keep in mind the context. Lest we think our relationship to treasure is just some peripheral side issue, Jesus gives another example, putting it back before us. Because keep in mind where he's going with all of these illustrations to anxiety. God is your father. But before we get there, we've got to pass through a few gates. And this second one, the reality of two conditions, gives us this example that our perspective on these matters of riches and treasure, earthly versus heavenly, is quite a big deal. In fact, if we get this wrong, we get everything wrong. We've all had this experience where we wake up in the middle of the night, maybe you're in a different room, different house, because of lack of light, we thought we knew where we were, but in fact we were somewhere else. How many of you, some of you children, Adults, you don't have to raise your hand. You thought there was an enormous monster in your room, but it turns out it's just your jacket hanging on the hook by the door. Or you get up in the middle of the night to get a drink of water, and you thought the coffee table was a little further to the left, but it's right where your left foot kicked it, right there. Now, why have we made all of these mistakes? Why have we foolishly thought one thing and realized reality was another? Because our vision failed us. Our perception of the truth, our idea of the way that things were, was skewed by the lack of light. The lack of light did not enable me to see what really is there. And so this passage then, we could say, is diagnostic. No one can do what is right, earthly treasure, heavenly treasure, unless he sees what is right. How you perceive things determines how you approach things. We all know this. Therefore, Jesus' message is not try harder. It is instead, examine yourself. What is your condition? Do I have good vision? Do I have a healthy eye? Or is my vision in these matters clouded? Am I coming to this all wrong? Is my perception of my affections towards earthly things skewed? And what would be the light that would help me see things as they really are? We know, if we're familiar with our scriptures, that the light that we need is the illumination of God's word. My circumstances, my life, literally my life, is meant to be illuminated by the truth of Scripture itself. It is entirely possible that you and I are consumed by our fixation upon earthly treasure of new furniture, dream vacations, pristine landscaping, the newest technology, the most flattering clothes, and we don't even realize it. The danger of skewed perception is very deceptive. We can be Greedy little consumers obsessed with appearances and owned by materialism and go merrily along our way simply because we have bad eyes. We can't see and we are ignorant of our own spiritual nearsightedness, if you will. Added to that, our cultural, let's call it dyslexia between wants and needs is often the evidence that we are very much entrenched in our Western-minded American culture, and we don't see as well as we think we do. 
we've done a pretty good job of convincing ourselves and our kids that luxuries are needs, wants, our necessities, and to have only our needs met, well, that's the definition of poverty. Now, how does that square with the light of Scripture? If we're going to honor the Lord with our earthly stewardship, we must ensure that we are seeing our lives clearly. Are we looking at life through the corrective lens of Scripture? Am I allowing my perception of my life to be defined by the illumination of Scripture? It's two conditions. But Jesus goes further. He doesn't let this rest. Because he then thirdly says, there's two masters as well. Look back at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Some translations, maybe the translation you memorized, verse 24 reads, you cannot serve God and mammon, capital M, which is helpful because the personification of money as a God is definitely the point Jesus is making here. Because, again, for Jesus, the root issue here is worship. He's using the language of idolatry prompting us to ask, whom do I serve? And secondly, notice that Jesus uses extremes. And his use of extremes is right and intentional. He speaks of love and hate. He speaks of devotion and despising. Only because the God of money and the God of the universe demand universal and total loyalty. It is not a mixture I will love the one and hate the other. I will despise the one and be devoted to the other. We know how this works and what this looks like. That if money becomes our God, that we're standing in opposition to all the calls of generosity, selflessness, compassion that God demands. We're well aware of that. But if we serve the true and the living God, then we stand in opposition to all the ideals of self-preservation, of personal comforts, of turning a blind eye to those that are in need, and the worship of money that we perceive that it empowers. The worship of God guards us from all of that because our hearts are captivated by a greater treasure, a greater affection. Therefore, what Christ is saying is that to serve God and to serve money is impossible because the servitude that they demand are incompatible. Just as you cannot love and serve love and hate or serve evil and good, you cannot ultimately serve God and serve money. No one can serve two masters. And this is why there are these repeated warnings for us in Scripture to guard us against the subtle destruction that comes through our love of being devoted to riches. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, do you notice the language? Love, craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Later in that same chapter, verse 17, 
Paul writes to, to Timothy, instructing him, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, what the scriptures teach in totality is that the Christian can only serve one master. And because of this, the Christian is on guard. On guard against materialism, against the allure of setting his hopes upon earthly riches. There can only be one God that I serve. Two treasures, two conditions, two masters. But lastly, let's consider the two responses. There's two responses that Christ says we will have to all of this. How does a Christian relate to the unknowns of life when, let's be honest, your needs outstrip your savings, your bills pile up greater than your paycheck, when your retirement savings is most certainly dwindling rather than increasing. How does a Christian respond to that reality? There can only be two responses. Anxiety or faith. The principle to this is given in verse 25. The principle underneath this response is this. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, the therefore in verse 25 is our first clue that the point in application and everything that has come before, it's being made right here. But upon first reading, the point might not be explicitly clear. Keep in mind the previous context. The Christian is one who knows his lasting treasure is wrapped up in eternal matters. His vision is clear on this. And he knows that God is his master and not his money. And so this is the great principle that grounds followers of Christ in daily living. Anxiety over the cares of life are incompatible with our new nature. Okay, can you give me an example? Yes, Christ says, I'll give you two. Notice the examples that shape the disciples' response. First, he says, let's look to the birds of the air. Look back at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? To worry about life... To worry about food is proof that we have learned nothing from nature. The point is not that we don't need to work, for birds don't just sit around waiting for food to fall into their beaks. The point is that birds don't worry. It seems trivial and silly, but it is so profound. When was the last time you looked out your back yard and saw a bird 
anxiously wringing its hands, nervously pacing about, sweating about finding food. Every time I look at birds in my backyards, I see the opposite. They're singing, hopping about, cheerfully gathering seeds and worms as they go along. They are enjoying what they did not produce, for God himself ensures that they would have what they need to eat. And here's the problem. We think that we are the ones who are ultimately responsible to create what we need. We look at the bird and say, he has it so easy. We think we're altogether different. Forgetting the foundational truth that Christ is laying right here. Don't miss his words in verse 26. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Don't just write this off as the way of nature or just chance. The birds in your backyard don't starve because your heavenly Father feeds them. Think about that. Therefore, if God takes care of the smallest bird, how much more so will he feed you? Why are you so anxious when God shows that he will ensure that the birds of the air do not go without? You see, a firm grasp upon the providential care of God over all details within creation has a tremendous effect upon calming our souls. God has given you a reminder. And as you look out your window this week or this afternoon and you see the birds eating, preach to yourself right there. Preach to yourself and remind yourself, my God just fed that bird. How much more so will he take care of me? The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing, the psalmist would say. Okay, that's one example. Do you have another example, Jesus? Okay, he says, verse 28, let's look to the flowers of the field. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We've considered the birds. Now let's consider the fields and the flowers. Consider the wonderful color of these fields and flowers, especially as we anticipate springtime. Ribbons of blue and yellow and purples and gold. There has never been a flower or a field that has broken out in a sweat over what they were going to bloom. You see, our God takes it upon himself to clothe every meadow and every field as he delights. And what we're talking about is grass that is here today and in this context going to be harvested and taken away with. Meaning its beauty is so temporal. It's here for a season, and yet God, not just the laws of nature or chance, determines that this field would be arrayed in all of its glory. You get the pattern of what Christ is getting at, isn't it? If God so clothes the grass of the field in all of its splendor, not even arrayed like Solomon in all of his wealth, if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not so much more so take care of you? Now let me warn you, as much as we know this is true, 
we equally know how often we fail to believe this. Why? Why do we fail to believe these simple yet profound truths? You may not like the answer that Christ gives. The reason for our anxiety over daily concerns of this life has to do with little faith. And what is faith? Faith is our response to the revelation of Scripture. Faith is our response, our willingness to believe what God has said. Faith is accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ by virtue of the covenant of grace that we stand upon as His people. Romans 10, 17, maybe this came to mind as I said, what is faith? Faith, we know, it comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. In the end, what Christ is teaching is that my anxiety stems from my refusal to believe that God is willing and able to meet my needs. My anxiety over the cares of this world is a lack of faith in who God is and what he has declared in his word. And my anxiety and my worry over these things is evidence of my true belief. It exposes what I truly trust in. I am my own. I must provide for myself. I must make a way for myself. I'm scared out of my mind. Those anxious cares over the cares of life expose my true belief that I am my own God. I am responsible for this, and I have forgotten that I have a heavenly Father who feeds birds and decks out the fields in all of their glory, how much more so does he actually care for me? So what is the disciple in his response? Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For... The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. How is a Christian different? Why is it that a Christian need not be anxious over these things? Well, one, the Christian has a heavenly Father. That's what he says in verses 31 and 32. Your heavenly Father. In light of God's gracious care, the questions posed here are unanswerable and the underlying attitudes are thoughtless. They're an insult to God who knows the needs of his people. To be anxious is to spurn his faithful ability. Back in verse 26. And the watchful care of his protection. Verse 32. Any anxiety over the cares of this life is the fruit of really our practical atheism. To become anxious over these things is to live like a pagan, like a heathen. In Christ's words, a Gentile. That is someone who does not know God. To live in this way is to live as if there is not a God who is your heavenly Father. But the Christian is one who knows God. The Christian is one who knows God so well that he prays to him by saying, Our Father. 
Followers of Jesus must live foundationally different from those who have no trust in God and no mindful thought of his fatherly care. Therefore, the antidote then for little faith, which is the root of my anxiety, is to remember that I have a heavenly father and my heavenly father knows all of my needs. What I'm calling to mind is his authority and his goodness. Heavenly father. His providential, sovereign care over all things. And that he is good and merciful and delights in providing for his people. Don't ever tell me that doctrine doesn't matter. Don't ever tell me and don't think for a moment that theology is just for professors and pastors. What we know and what we believe about God will work its way into the very minute details of every life, everyday life. The scriptures proclaim a reconciliation between God and man that is so intimate that it must be defined in the language of family. Adoption as sons and daughters. And the God who would stand as our judge and rightly condemn us now stands as our Father, promising to faithfully care for all of our needs. The Christian not only has a heavenly Father, but the Christian seeks his kingdom. This is verse 33. Look at that. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So let's re-ask Jesus' original question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The Christian is someone who raises their hand and confidently says, yes. With a joyful shout, I live for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a kingdom that will not be shaken, a city whose builder and maker is God. But to be clear, Christians are not simply minimalists, refusing temporal matters like food or drink or clothing. Christ is getting at here is not merely just the outward stoicism of restraint, but a replacement of these pursuits with something far greater, something far more significant. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, confident that I am a citizen of his kingdom and a child of this heavenly father, and therefore as a child and a citizen, I am well cared for. There is someone greater than me who watches over me, And therefore, I can go into this life with a completely different mindset. To seek first is to desire above all, to enter into, to submit unto, and to participate in the spreading of the good news of this reign of God, resting in the messianic kingdom already inaugurated by Christ. And so, we are assured that when our allegiance and our devotion is that we've been brought into this kingdom, and our king, he will never allow us to lack, we shall have our daily bread. And we will find all that we need for bodily life. We will not be anxious. But he says in verse 34, the Christian not only has God as his father and the kingdom as his citizenship, the Christian takes life one day at a time. Look again at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Essentially, worry over tomorrow's unknowns is foolish because you already have enough on your plate today. In essence, to worry about tomorrow is to reach across and grab a double portion and to put it on your plate right alongside your worry and say, I'll have seconds, thank you, before I even got through my first. Your plate for today already has a certain portion of trouble on it which God said he'll be faithful to provide for. But now you're reaching ahead and putting a double portion, and you want to be anxious over that as well. How did Christ teach us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. Meaning, we pray as one who says, Father, I have these particular needs and troubles today. Would you provide all that I need so that I might rest content in you? And then tomorrow you wake up again, the troubles of the day greet you, the concerns upon your mind, and you pray again, Father, give us this day our daily bread. And your Father has already promised that he'll supply all that you need each day. And so you take a breath, you seek him daily, and you rest and expect to find his faithful provision for these daily needs. And if tomorrow brings new troubles... You rest content again, because you know that you will greet that day with the same prayer, our Father in heaven. Now, as wonderful as this is, I need to be honest with you. If you do not know God as your Father, you have every reason to be anxious. You, then, are out there all alone. You're fighting, you're striving to provide for yourself. And because of this, you are the only one who can make it happen. You are dependent upon your own wisdom, your own education, your hustle, your resume, your salary, your experiences. And therefore, you ought to have ulcers. You ought to have a high blood pressure. You ought to have sleepless nights in a cabinet full of medication. Assuming you have enough squirreled away for retirement, what will you do with your soul when death comes? If God is not your father, you have every reason to be panicked and anxious daily. Apart from Christ, we have nothing to do but be anxious. The message of the gospel then comes in and says to us, you were not created to live on your own because your creator intends to be your heavenly father. And Christ has come to reconcile us to God that we might not know him as our judge or a distant deity, but to know him as our heavenly father who is sovereignly wise over all things and perfectly good in all matters. A Christian is one who no longer needs to be anxious because they have the might of the eternal God of heaven watching over them, providing, leading, and directing each step of the day. The Christian and only the Christian 
is the one who then can truly cease to be anxious because they have God as their father. So can I ask you, do you know this God, not the God of your imagination, but the God of the Bible as your father? Not simply as God, not simply as authority, but as your father. The only way that you could ever know him so tenderly if, is if you know Jesus as your savior, as your substitute. The only people who can call God as father are the ones who look to Christ as savior. Because you cannot approach this God in all of his holiness and might and in his wisdom on your own. You must come by a mediator. And the good news of Scripture is that God has provided a mediator. He has given us His Son to be that substitute for the sins and the offenses that would rightly bring God's wrath down upon you as a judge. Christ absorbs so that all that is left within this God is fatherly care, a love that overflows for His people. Do you know God as your Father? The answer to that question is, who is Jesus? And how you respond to who is Jesus then determines who God is. But Christian, are you looking to God as your father? Because if you, you could have just said yes and amen to everything that I just said about God and Christ and his mercy. But that does you no good if you're not appropriating that truth and saying, yes, that is true of me. God is my father and I'm looking to him as my father. The Christian is one who takes comfort in his unlimited resources of his heavenly Father, the unending patience to faithfully care for me through every trial, through every season of lack, every concern that ever crosses my mind that I'm looking to him as my Father. How is it that we go into this year with so much unknown and uncertainty? The Christian leans forward and says, well, that has everything to do with who God is and who I am. He's my heavenly father. And therefore, I trust him. Father, we look to you this morning as our God and as our father. And in you we find all our source of comfort, all our hope of assurance and rest. And based upon the promises of your own word and the giving of your Son, we are confident that we have all that we need. But Lord, we are also confident in how often we forget, how often we neglect your own mercy. So we do pray, Father, that you would forgive us, that you would help us, that you would comfort us and sustain us. So we cast our cares upon you, knowing that you are the one who cares for us. And in your care for us, being perfectly sovereign, unlimited in power and wisdom, and in your care of us and for us, flowing from your Father's heart, through your Son and his grace, by the ministry of your Spirit, we rest and we are confident that whatever days may come in this year, whatever circumstances may mark our life or our calendar, that in all of this we can be confident that you are our Heavenly Father and how much 
more so will you not care for us. Bind us up, keep us, guard us, and direct our steps by these wonderful truths, we pray. Amen.